Today's guest is Rosalind Picard, a researcher and inventor named on over 100 patents, an entrepreneur, author, professor, and engineer. When it comes to the science related to endowing computer software with emotional intelligence, she wrote the book. It's published by MIT Press and called Affective Computing. Dr. Picard is founder and director of the MIT Media Lab's Affective Computing Research Group. Her research and engineering contributions have been recognized internationally. For example, she received the 2022 International Lombardi Prize for Computer Science Research, considered by many to be the Nobel Prize in Computer Science. Through her research and companies, Dr. Picard has developed wearable sensors, algorithms, and systems for sensing, recognizing, and responding to information about human emotion. Her products are focused on using fitness trackers to move forward clinical quality treatments for a range of conditions. Meanwhile, in just the past few years, numerous fitness tracking companies have released products with their own stress sensors and systems. You may have heard about Fitbit's Stress Management Score or Whoop's Stress Monitor. These features measure things like your heart rhythm and certain type of invisible sweat to identify stress. They're designed to raise your awareness about forms of stress like anxiety and anger and suggest strategies like meditation to relax in real time when stress occurs. But how well do these off-the-shelf gadgets and apps work? There's no one more knowledgeable and experienced than Rosalind Picard to explain the science behind these stress features, what they do exactly, how they might be able to help us, and their current shortcomings. Dr. Picard is a member of the National Academy of Engineering and a fellow of the National Academy of Inventors and a popular speaker who's given over 100 invited keynote talks with a TED Talk with over 2 million views. She holds a bachelor's in electrical engineering from Georgia Tech and a master's and doctorate degrees in electrical engineering and computer science from MIT. She lives in Newton, Massachusetts with her husband, where they've raised three sons. In our conversation, we discuss stress scores on fitness trackers to improve well-being. Dr. Picard carefully describes the difference between commercial products that might help people become more mindful of their health and other products that are FDA approved and really capable of advancing the science. This is important to keep in mind as a consumer, since most companies' marketing won't exactly be highlighting their own shortcomings. We also discuss several fascinating findings and concepts discovered in Dr. Picard's lab, including the multiple arousal theory, which I hadn't heard of. It's a phenomenon you'll want to hear about. And we talk about just how complex stress is for many reasons, which is one reason it's tough to measure. For example, many forms of stress are actually good for us. Can fitness trackers really tell the difference between stress that's healthy and unhealthy? I'm Matt Fuchs, and this is Making Sense of Science. So obviously you, you bring a, a really important perspective to these issues as one of the foundational thinkers, probably the most important original thinker on effective computing. I want to ask, I know that you have a really balanced, nuanced view of technology in this, in this area. I've heard you observe that the pace of progress with tech speeds up as the, as uh, you know, maybe a certain issue gets more and more attention. And I think the goal of stress management has uh, gotten lots of attention. You probably all agree during the pandemic and, and in some interesting ways that's carried forward in the post-pandemic era. Do you see the, the various stress trackers that are being offered now by everyone, Google, Apple, Whoop, like mm -hmm. and others, as, uh, as promising for the science of affective computing in the sense that these metrics are now being informed by the data of many 
consumers so that scientists in your field can learn from it. And I do want to say, actually, one that I, I know that you are doing a lot of work mm -hmm. on this directly through Effectiva, or you were with Effectiva and, and now with Empatica. So yeah, really mm -hmm. interesting perspective. Yeah, yeah. And and full disclosure, uh, I'm a shareholder of Empatica um, and a co-founder uh, and serve on their board of directors. And I have in the last year consulted for both Apple and Samsung. <laughs> so I'm um, And I publish in this area. My full-time job is at MIT. Uh, I'm, you know, you know, mostly a researcher. So I'm not unbiased, not that I think anybody is purely unbiased on anything. It's more about disclosing our biases. I think the, um, I think it's exciting that this stuff that we originally thought, you know, was crazy back when we first thought we could measure some of the stuff on the wrist and, and built these first working devices. And we dreamed of what is happening now, you know, and here it is happening. And so that alone is very exciting. Um, however, we've learned a lot in terms of, you know, what is stress, what is, what is not, what is it not? And in terms of, I, I love how your question focuses on the science. When it comes to advancing the science, it's a bit disappointing, the data from consumer devices. I don't think it's actually helping advance the science like it might have been able to do. And part of that is because we've learned that stress is much more complex. I think of it now as an umbrella on this day when it's pouring rain here as an umbrella term, which a big umbrella term, which lots of different kinds of people and things can fit under. And while it sounds like a singular concept, you know, ah, I'm stressed. There's so many different kinds of stress and they show up in the body in so many different kinds of ways that the, uh, heart rate variability, the skin conductance, the motion, the temperature that we're usually getting on the wrist are only giving, you know, that that's giving really interesting information, but what people label and call stress in their life, which is what we, we need to align with the data and the context in order to do a better job of really uh, advancing the science in this area, the labels people use are really uh, poor and they, uh, there are a lot of reasons why the consumer deployed and labeled stress studies really aren't helping significantly advance the science right now. So, so the labels that are created by the companies, or is this like a subjectivity problem with people not accurately identifying their own emotions? All of the above. <laughs> yeah, I, I have a whoop and it is really interesting. They have so many labels um, for the activity that you're yeah. in. So it could be like, if I have a high stress work uh, situation, I can label that, but there aren't, I don't see, or maybe I just haven't found like lots of different labels to actually like assess or tell the system what emotion I'm experiencing so that it can learn, right? That's, mm -hmm. that I think would be the goal over time. It gets to know right. me and it's my signals coming through the sensor. Exactly, exactly. That was our original vision. And that's where, you know, we do need a lot of data. Uh, but what we're learning is that the science, to really advance the science, you need to really characterize that context and those labels better than what's what's out there. Hmm. Yeah, so it's such an interesting area. Do you have any of these smartwatches or fitness trackers that have oh, yeah. these? Yeah, I, I, well, I'm wearing the Embrace Plus right now, which, um, you know, you can guess is my favorite because it gathers everything the consumer ones does, but it does it at clinical quality. 
it got all, all of the sensors that it's collecting uh, meet FDA requirements for the data, uh, which is not true of the other ones you named. And they also um, give all the raw data, which is not true of the other ones you named. Some of them, Fitbit will give some of the raw data. Apple will only give you raw movement data if your IRB form is approved by them and by your IRB, which is a lot of hurdles to go through for an impoverished set of data. Um, whoop, which, I don't which, know if they give any real good data at all. I, they're really not used and I haven't seen good science come out of there yet. I haven't looked in the last months, but before that, um, it wasn't, there was a lot of amazing marketing, <laughs> really, really through the top marketing. I'd say Whoop is, Whoop and Apple are number one at marketing, uh, yeah. not at the science. Which uh, watch do you have? I, I missed the brand. This is the well. This is not sold directly to consumer. It's Empatica Embrace Plus. Uh, it's, oh, it's your um, your watch. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. This one, um, it's uh, sold in usually in batches to people running uh, clinical studies, clinical trials. It's got the triple PPG underneath. Um, that's uh, passed not only the FDA requirements for heart rate, heart rate variability, well, they call it pulse rate on the wrist because if you constrict the arm, you still have a heart rate, but you don't have a pulse rate. Uh, so pulse rate, pulse rate variability, um, SpO2 uh, for blood oxygen, um, the movement accelerometer, gyro temperature and uh, electrodermal activity, these electrodes here on the inside, I think it's the only one out there that does that, uh, that's, um, beautiful and comfortable and flexible um, and it runs ai on board for uh customizing interventions like an F, like a fda cleared seizure alert right. uh, which actually this is not fda cleared to alert for seizures today oh. it, it will be soon our predecessor device is uh the embrace too and at empatica's predecessor device and um so this is collecting what sounds like the same data but it's collecting it with a much higher bar that's met, that's clinical quality that can be submitted to clinical trials for uh, real medical filings. And um, to get that FDA clearance, you not only have to prove the data passes all these quality tests uh, while a person's wearing it and doing the activities, which is another bar, but you also have to prove that it works these days, nice raised bar criteria on darker skin, on different body types, on people who are sick, as well as young, healthy 20-something-year-olds and 30-something-year-olds and 40-something-year-olds and 50-something-year-olds, the new young and healthy. Um, and the um, also you have to prove that there's a lot of cybersecurity and all this boring but important standard operating procedures, adverse event reporting, all this other stuff on the back end that consumer devices don't have to do. So there's a lot more that goes into uh, something like this, and it still looks like kind of a normal, you know, um, watch. It's got the time and it's got buttons and, you know, all that stuff. Um, but it doesn't, it, it doesn't run 31 apps that interfere with the quality of your data. Uh -huh. And it's not being offered commercially at this point, just because the price point would be out of reach, I imagine, um, given the high technology that you're in. Yeah, actually, you know, probably if we had the budget to do the advertising, you know, we could sell the quantities and get the price point within reach, but we have a different goal. And the different goal is really advancing the health and the science of people in a um, way that really moves forward clinical quality treatments. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's kind of a different goal. If you think you're like, 
this came very clear to me one night when I was at the bar after, uh, let's just say he had had three drinks with a leader at uh, one of the top marketing wearable companies. I, I won't name so clearly. Um, you can probably guess who. And, um, you know, we're talking about like the future of health on the wrist and what needed to be done to really advance it. And he just admitted after three drinks that, you know, what we really want is just to sell more devices. And I thought, you know, and when you look at if your real goal is just to sell more devices, you want to sound like you're cutting edge with the health. You want to make it look, you want to have the features, you want to have great user experience, you want to pour, pour tons of money into advertising, which is where people really think the innovation like I was shocked to see how high one company got rated on innovation the other day when they're like, from a technical standpoint, they're way down um, on innovation. But the perception is managed by the budgets. And so they'll claim all of these things that people say they want. But if you're really trying to do the science, you've got to have trustworthy quality data. You've got to have trustworthy quality labels. And it turns out they're they're more complicated than what we originally thought. And I, I put me in there. I, I mean, I really thought what we have now, if, I, if you'd told me we'd have what we have now, I would have thought, wow, that's gonna revolutionize the science. Maybe I'm on the record of saying that at some point. And it is helping move it forward, right? Because now people see the value of like, hey, you could actually measure physiological changes related to stress and health in real life, right? So, so that part's good. Um, but to really push the science we've got to have more nuanced information about what's going on. We've got to have better characterized people and better characterized context of what the people are doing in these situations. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned that some of these watches are running 10 apps in the background, interfering potentially with the signals that are coming with them from them for tracking stress. I wonder about that specifically with some of these watches, like maybe like the Apple Watch that connect to your email or even your social media. And so I guess I wasn't aware that these apps actually interfere. And I would throw into that, it seems like a lot of people, I would include myself in this, they want to get away from their email and their social media rather than having it pop up on their wrist every two seconds. And that could actually be counterproductive when it comes to stress management for a lot of people, right? We're like, yeah, that yeah. might actually increase your stress, but maybe you need the watch you, more. You, you, are, you have got a great pulse, pulse on this, if I must say. <laughs> you have great intuitions. I like your Thank questions you. and I like your reflections. Yeah, Thank definitely. Um, I remember when I had one of the very first uh, Samsung watches, I think it was even before Apple had, their, you know, it was like really early days and it, um, oh my gosh, it popped up with every email and tweet and everything. And I couldn't last 20 minutes with this thing. I'm like, this is not good. I need to spend a day turning off all these things. Um, later, you know, those things have improved, right? But it really was like the early days when people had their little mailbox pop up on the computer. You've got mail, you've got mail, you've got mail. You can't look at your screen and focus on anything if you don't turn that off. Yeah, even even more annoying, perhaps if it's possible, than Clippy, right? The, the little yeah, it's a different uh, kind of annoyance, right? Clippy yeah. wasn't like usually popping up all the time. Clippy was a mismatch of emotion. I, I mean, I I was reminded of Clippy when I don't know if you saw the most watched congressional testimony of our three university presidents recently being asked about 
you know, um, very difficult situation uh, that we're struggling with. And um, one of them, the UPenn one, smiled like this when asked about this very distressing topic. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's just like Clippy coming up looking happy when somebody's suffering terrible misfortune, right? Like I just said, she's she's a goner um, just for that smile, you know? He was, but this was the pen president? Yeah, the pen yeah. president. You go back and look at the three, you know, she, she's the one who looks like she's smiling while she's being questioned about the most stressful moment. Um, obviously there's more to it than just that, but but it doesn't help. Right. Like when people when they're calling out some horrific suffering or tragedy and, you know, people in this case calling for genocide of Jews, you know, it's absolutely horrific thing. And, you know, should, in my opinion, should absolutely never be allowed here. You know, may, maybe in a, maybe in someone was pointing out, maybe in a class where you're trying to coach people on what would be wrong behavior, you know, you're allowed to refer to that. But um, but it's. Um, you know, to smile, right? Like, you know, you, you just, it's just unthinkable. Absolutely. So there, there is this need to get the emotional tone of these yeah. devices in line with what people are needing, experiencing. I did want yeah. to actually circle back to the apps running in the background. Mm -hmm. I just to flesh that out a bit. Would people actually get a more accurate signal and tra uh, measurements if they turned some of those apps off so they're not interfering or it's hard to say depending it's hard, on to, it's hard to say so he, so here's the deal and in fact when um you know when somebody was asking the ceo of empatica recently what, what's the difference in the watches he said we sell data <laughs> they sell devices so it, it's a it's a different set of goals. Um, so there's several factors. So if your goal is to sell devices, first of all, you can use cheaper sensors. You know, you don't have to have FDA cleared quality on the sensing. You don't have to have a continuous pulse rate underneath. It's okay to, um, and, and by the way, when you sell data and you're collecting all that data, that's, you're driving the sensors a lot more. You know, we're driving the PPG constantly or the SPO2, depending what people want. We can turn on and off different things depending on what people want, but those directly affect battery life. If I turn off some of these, if somebody just wants actigraphy data, I turn off some of the other stuff, it'll last for two weeks, right? If I, um, if somebody wants full-blown everything, it will last for two days. So the consumer watches have had better, some of them have done really well on battery life. The one you just mentioned has done very poorly on battery life. People for the longest time couldn't even get it to work 24 hours, like through the night to track sleep. So uh, you know, which really hurts most of the kind of things my group wants to do um, on top of that they won't give the raw data. So one reason they won't give the raw data is they're not collecting continuously the raw data. If they collect continuously the raw data, they can't get even, you know, eight hours of battery life while also offering you all these other features. Oh, wow. So there's a fundamental uh, constraint satisfaction problem, right? And yeah. it comes back to I'm, I'm reminded of one of my favorite professors used to say, anything is optimal given the right criteria, right? If your right. criteria is to give people these top five or six interesting things they want and the feeling that they're getting some useful health information, then you want to optimize the function that we're seeing these top selling consumer smartwatches optimizing. And, and there's a, as we see, there's an amazing market for that. It's great. And it gets people mindful of their health. 
-hmm. and talking about their stress and taking more steps. Uh, and I think all these things are great. I'm, I don't want to diss any of that. I think that is, um, there's a real need for that and it's good. Um, it's not the same as advancing the science. If you're advancing the science, you, you know, you don't want to, or the medicine. Okay. So for example, let me go to the extreme of our seizure forecasting app. Uh, we've got an app where, you know, it wants to detect as quickly as possible, but thinks you're having a potentially life-threatening seizure. That would be a really lousy time for your consumer smartwatch to decide to do its evening updates. You know, these yeah. most dangerous seizures are not always, but often happening while people are asleep. These consumer companies think that's the perfect time to update the Uber app and the butterfly drawing app and the food ordering app and all those other cool things. Um, you know, if you've got a life-threatening medical condition, you don't want all those things deciding that they're going to start updating uh, at those times, right? Absolutely. You want your, so your priorities are different. And so when you optimize for these priorities, you come up with, you know, one kind of design. When you optimize for these, you need, you need clinical quality, you need low latency, you need reliability, you need also verification that the back end signals are being watched and verified. Like we do complete monitoring and tracking of the back end, watching for adverse events. We'll even watch if a component in your device um, looks like it's not working properly anymore, right? And let you know. Consumer people don't care about that. <laughs> like, oh, good. They're, yeah, you're they're still using it, right? They land the planet to start falling apart within a couple of years so that you'll buy a new one, right? Yeah. We're like, we don't want any part of this to fall apart. That might be somebody's kid, their life on the line, right? So we put Certainly our money in different places, right? They're different purposes. Oh, such an, an important point. And are you, do you think that the data collected on these emotional experiences, affective experiences, should receive the same privacy protections as medical data. I think that I've seen you um, or heard, heard you make that comment. Yeah. And a, a researcher that I, I ask about that, I think we'll maybe throw a little nuance in there that a research that I, researcher that I talked with um, last week expressed concern about people being confused and thinking about the commercially available sensors and stress trackers as medical devices and how they're, they're really, these, as you're saying, and making yeah. a good point, that they're not really up to meeting the standards of medical devices. Do you think that if this data got the same protections as medical data, that, that might backfire a little bit and that it could contribute to more confusion amongst uh, consumers about you know what these devices are actually for? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And this is, a, this is a hot area in the EU right now, right? With their regulations prohibiting health data and affective data. Uh, in a whole list of uses without people's, you know, um, uh, first of all, we do everything with people's fully informed prior consent. We actually have them uh, you know, spell out understanding of these things. Um, consumer people, you know, there's a giant EULA and they just click accept and they're mm -hmm. in. Um, it's, it's an interesting question, like what is medical data now? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if you're just getting an occasional pulse rate related to your resting heart rate while you're uh, you know, after a jog, that's not treated as medical data. Um, it's, you know, we, we can all take our pulse. Now the device gives it, uh, that's not considered medical. If, however, you claim your device can be used for remote patient monitoring, uh, then it's a medical claim. And then FDA is going to want to see that you've, you know, 
filed 1500 pages of <laughs> crazy amount of work. Okay. Right. So you can see why people go consumer, right? I think Apple last yeah. night looked, had two FDA clearances uh, for their regular rhythm notification and their uh, separate ECG, both of which actually uh, the ITC ruled against. So they're being asked to th that in the Massimo ruling um, mean that they're prohibiting importing Apple watches as, as currently designed. Um, I think is the it okay for the falling? Doesn't Apple have the sensor that can tell if you've fallen? I don't know if that's something they a lot of watches for a long time. Actually, this was nothing we had dreamed of back in like 1999. It was funny, we had prototyped. Um, it's a watch with the accelerometer that can sense sudden falls um, or automobile accidents, you know, sudden uh, decel or anti gravity fall. Um, yeah, this kind of thing has, has been uh, out and about in devices for, for a long time. If it works and saves somebody, that's awesome, right? And you do hear some great stories like that. Uh, there's also a huge number of false alarms. I don't think they have an FDA clearance on that. I may be wrong, but I, I don't think it requires FDA clearance for fall detection. Yeah, FDA doesn't regulate that. It's not you know diagnostic, treatment, monitoring. By the way, these devices are opening up a whole lot of new questions for FDA about like, like where, where is there, where does their line stop and end? You know, we're we're right on the boundary of a bunch of those with our current research. Well, especially like the the connection between some of this data and and mental health, and you know, is it predictive mm -hmm. of right. you know mental illness and um and yeah, that's yeah. where our current research is right. We're using these measures um, in context over time to uh, track uh, depression symptoms right now with an accuracy that is on par with what the you know, Mass General Hospital, number one rated in psychiatry, psychiatrists are rating people with extensive surveys. Now, we don't track it without people's fully informed consent and without a doctor in the loop, without a first visit, I should be clear, the device isn't doing this without that extra input. Uh, but it is able, once you have that, um, to monitor changing symptoms in the populations that we've studied. And, and how is these sensors, and I, I would include Empatica in this, um, but tell me if I'm wrong, are they overcoming the movement artifacts when it comes to HRV and CEDA? These are, yeah. and also the placement on the wrist. I know that there's been some, yeah. um, some, some research on, you know, is it better on as a chest strap to pick up on HRV, mm -hmm. for example, and maybe like yeah. the it's palm. It's very or device dependent. It's very device dependent. So. Mm -hmm. Uh, sort of the stiffer the device, like our older E4 devices were very stiff and they would have a lot of motion artifacts when you, um, you know, if, if it would slip on the wrist from being snug to being loose, the data is garbage for the PPG, right? The photoplasticograph from which we derive the interbeat intervals and the heart rate variability. Um, we also built on wrist detection, right? And quality detection and all that kind of stuff. So we could, we could see that, but a lot of the E4 system that's out there that's now like how many years old um uh eight nine years old um isn't using that latest stuff right the latest stuff that's now fda cleared that's in here takes um into account uh multiple channels of information to figure out the quality and uh you know whether you're on wrist or in the charger whether you're on the wrist properly what you're doing. And also this particular device has a very soft and flexible band that makes it a lot more comfortable to snug it up. Mm -hmm. And that is a big deal too, right? If it's really comfy to wear snug, 
people forget about it and they wear it through all kinds of grueling things like the ultimate stressor um, that I heard about recently, our devices at Empatica and several of the consumer ones you mentioned were taken uh, to Antarctica. On oh, I thought you were going to say childbirth. <laughs> Antarctica oh, childbirth. Well, that <laughs> would be really successful. Boy, that would be a great example of a major stressor. Holy cow. Yeah, I can remember one of my own three where I was like ripping off the sensors. It's like the astronauts and the Apollo mission, you know, coming back and like they're so stressed and they're ripping off the sensors. Exactly that kind of situation where like, I don't want anything touching me. It's so stressful. Yeah. I wanted to just ask for your personal experience of using the Empatica uh, sensor and, and watch. How are you? Are you using it to manage your stress? Do you find it to be helpful for that purpose? Understanding that this is more of a state-of-the-art device than what we have commercially available, but is this, in terms of you know the extent that this better represents the potential of these devices, mm -hmm. is the potential there? in your experience to have it be a positive experience with reducing um, stress levels. Yeah, yeah. I I have um, used it for over a decade, devices we've built. By the way, I've built probably over 100 devices at this point um, in our lab. I was thinking we should string them up on a clothesline <laughs> the other day. Um, what I have learned the most from for managing my own stress is my electrodermal activity and in respiration for uh, how to both um, reduce stress and also some real surprises from the electrodermal activity where it's uh, one of the big findings was it's different on the two sides. It's regulated by different parts of the brain. Uh, so I used to think we had just stress, but if you, um, if you get a chance to watch my TED talk that went on the front page of TED on um, senior detection, uh, it starts off with uh, we were trying to monitor stress and then we found a big signal on one wrist and not the other. And I'm like, how can you be stressed on one side of the body and not the other? Um, and it turns out there are different neural kinds of stress, uh, you know, right amygdala, left amygdala and so forth. And they, sh they manifest differently on the surface of the skin. And in the lab, you might see usually the two sides are the same. People like just aren't that threatened in a lab, like IRB approved study, how bad can it be? But in real life, there are real threatening situations that can cause the way the consumer devices are doing stress to just do the exact opposite of what is truly uh, happening. So they, they can just give you the completely wrong answer, not, wow. not just because of motion artifacts and positioning and, you know, um, algorithms that are updating, you know, lift apps, but because of uh, they're actually working on flawed assumptions about what we've since learned about stress. So we've published the multiple multiple arousal theory. And in the multiple arousal theory, we talk about there's many kinds of arousal, physiological arousal, not just like sexual or stress or cognitive, but um, within the stress concept in particular, uh, there are different kinds of stressors that are more threatening, more cognitive, more um, you know, workload related. They're, they're just a lot of different kinds of them. And they actually show up very differently on the wrists. Yeah. And then there's there's also healthy stress, right? When you're yes. not just exercise, but also if you go into a sauna uh, yeah. or uh, you, yeah. you know, you, you go into a cold plunge. Yeah. You know, and a lot of that is that 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 um, state of mind with the difference between pain and suffering. Yeah. Right. Like when you have a purpose in the sauna to be relaxing. Yeah, you have a purpose. 
Yeah, down in um, down in Orlando at the conference where I was supposed to look nice the other day for the epilepsy meeting, and it felt like a sauna outside. That was not the positive stress, right? I'm like telling myself, like some people pay to have this kind of heat and humidity, but right now I don't want this. Right, I'm gonna look like a drowned rat when I show up for the meeting. But I'm, you know, but then if you reframe it right as um, have as purposeful, then you know it's not so miserable. So you could turn that distress into use stress in many cases, the threat challenge. Yeah, absolutely. And um, uh -huh. I think it would be sort of in our chat GPT era, you uh -huh. have to consider these models in the context yeah. of these devices and sensors. Is there anything you would say about the future of large language models, either pros or cons when it comes to these sensors? Yeah, um, it's an exciting research area. It's super overhyped and there's some really bad science being done with it right now. I would be very cautious. Um, just throwing a massive model at some of these problems, you know, they'll, they'll cherry pick a few cases where it gives better performance, but there's some where it's gonna do significantly worse and they're, they're not a panacea <laughs> for every problem we have. But they're, they have made amazing contributions in language. I think they will make amazing contributions in a number of other areas, but it's too early to, uh, uh, to, to make some of the claims that are being made. And I imagine it relates to the labels, right? You have to have the right labels in order for these large language models to learn from people's experiences and labels are yep. insufficient. Then that's yep. going to be right. Yeah. Roz, thank you so much for uh, your time. And I'll keep thank you Matt, for your interest. And thanks for helping the world learn more about uh, these things and help uh, hopefully gradually move the science forward too. Thank you. Thank you for your groundbreaking yeah. effort in this area. Yeah. Roz, I really yeah. appreciate it. Thanks for checking out the Making Sense of Science podcast. If you like the show and you want to hear more from the best thinkers of our time to help make sense of the latest health innovations and their impacts, please hit the follow button. And in the meantime, visit our online magazine at UpworthyScience.com, where you can read in-depth articles that explore health breakthroughs through the lens of rational optimism. Thanks for reading, listening, and most importantly, thinking about what you find on Upworthy Science.